All right, uh, we're gonna do this. It's a rainy Saturday. The coronavirus is going around, but we're here. We're breaking the word open together. We're in the book of Judges, uh, Judges chapter four. I was going to say, I was gonna start this by saying, open your Bible to the book of COVID chapter 19, but I'm not gonna use that joke. Um, Judges chapter four. I will point out, this is very early on in the middle portion of Judges. Uh, the middle portion of Judges is where we see the cycle of sin begin to spiral out of control. Uh, the people keep turning away from God, and He keeps raising up a judge, and then they don't listen to the judge, and they fall deeper into sin. This is, uh, in chapter 4, it begins, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, after Ehud died. I have to say a few words about Ehud. I love this guy. Um, he's left-handed, uh, which I am left-handed. And <clears throat> he's a Benjaminite, which that's my name. So I, I like this guy. Uh, but he goes to see Eglon. And <laughs> I have to tell you a funny story. I was uh, preparing to, to bring the word at the men's meeting uh, last week. And... I had a dream, and I'm not saying this is, this is not prophetic. This is just my, uh, my, my mind at work, uh, probably a little overactive. But I had a dream that I was preaching on uh, Ehud, and uh, the, the word that God was, was uh, giving me was, when the, when the sword of the word goes in, all the dirt comes out. And uh, I didn't know if I could preach that in a way that wasn't, uh, that wasn't a little bit soft work, but I actually do think that the point of that story is that the word of God is a double-edged sword, and he goes to uh, he goes to Eglon and he says, "I have a message for you, King. I have a word," and he thrusts the sword in, and uh, the people are delivered uh, from that king's oppression. Um, and it's true, when the sword of the word goes in, uh, the dirt comes out, and we are made pure and holy. So. Um, as, as awkward as that is, uh, I believe that it, that is one of the points of that story. But anyway, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And I mention Ehud because <clears throat> I believe these two stories are connected in some thematic ways. Um, and chronologically, I think that they happen right next to each other. So Ehud dies, and it says, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Um, both of these stories, um, the, the climax of the story is a stabbing or a piercing. Uh, and in both of these stories, the judge is strong in the word, the declaration of the word. Ehud says, I have a message for you. And Deborah is a prophetess, and she declares the word of God. So I, I do think that these, these two judges are related. They share a lot of similarities. <clears throat> Um, what I want to do is just go through uh, the, the way that the Deborah story is told is it's told twice, uh, first as a narrative, and then in chapter five as a song and poetry. And so I want to go through the narrative uh, first and just look at the details of the story. And then I want to look at a few points in the song and then draw out some, uh, some conclusions for us, uh, perhaps some applications. But um, so let's go through the story. Uh, where are we? Chapter 4, verse 3. 
<clears throat> the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, and that's Jabin, the king of Canaan, uh, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. He had 900 chariots of iron. And chariots of iron are the reason in chapter 1 that Judah could not drive out uh, some of the inhabitants of the land. Chariots of iron were, uh, these were a big uh, opposition. These were a big enemy for the people of God. And it says that there was cruel oppression for 20 years. So things are in a bad way. Uh, in the song, in chapter 5, it says that uh, <clears throat> people wouldn't even go out on the highways. That there, was, there was fear gripping the land. Uh, perhaps people were self-quarantining at home. Um, but then in, in verse 4, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And it's interesting, we don't, we don't hear how uh, that came to be. Uh, this was a woman who had a relationship with God, who, who received the word of God, and she, by virtue of that, was in this position of judging Israel. Um, I don't know if you all have talked about and I don't think I've mentioned it at ECF yet, but uh, just the, the role of judge is a little bit ambiguous in the book. What, what exactly is a judge? It's a strange word. Uh, we think of a judge as, as a guy who sits in the robe and your honor and pronounces guilty, but, but that's not really the sense in which uh, the judges in the book of Judges were, were judging Israel. It has more to do with the idea of deliverance and salvation and bringing, uh, bringing peace and, uh, and freedom from captivity. So she was there judging Israel at that time, and she, was, she had a reputation. She was well-known. She, she set up shop between, it says, Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Um, so she, she would, in a sense, um, pronounce judgment in, in that more typical sense that we think. But she also does act as a deliverer for Israel. Uh, so these were really bad times, as I mentioned. In, in, uh, if you look in chapter 5, verse 6, in the days of Shamgar, who's mentioned right after the story of Ehud and right bef before the story of Deborah, um, in the days of Jael, which we'll get to Jael, I love Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. Nobody was going out in the open. Okay? The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. What a great description of a woman of God. I arose as a mother in Israel. Um, so let's move on in the, in the story. <clears throat> Verse 6 of chapter 4. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So she declares the word of God. She summons Barak and says, You have a job to do by the word of the Lord. Uh, go and muster an army. We are going to throw off this oppression. Barak said to her, if you, will, uh, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, some people point to this as a, 
as an act of cowardice on Barak's part, that he had to have a, a woman's help. I think the guy's smart, right? He knows, <laughs> he knows where the anointing is. He knows where the strength is, right? No one else is doing anything. Deborah has the word of the Lord, and he says, all right, if you're going to give this word to me, come with me. And uh, Barak is actually the one mentioned um, out of a, a few of the judges in the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith. So I don't know if this was the act of cowardice that sometimes it's made out to be. I think the guy just recognized where the power was and that it was genuinely with Deborah in that time. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you were going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. <clears throat> and I do think that one of the points of the story is to show that Things are a little upside down in this time. And Deborah, a woman being a judge, is not normative, but that's how God was working in that time. Things were so topsy-turvy that, uh, that, that a woman had to tell a man to go muster an army and we've got to do something. Now notice, it's not Deborah mustering the army. She calls a man and says, go muster the troops. She knows that probably she would not succeed very much in calling forth these 10,000 troops. But Barak can do it, and he's the guy. Tell him to go do it. <clears throat> then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali. He called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. All right, so the, the, the army, the militia is mustered, and the, the, the battle lines are being drawn. Uh, verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, all 900 of these iron chariots. Okay, these are, these are heavy artillery. Um, this is a, this is a uh, f formidable opposition. 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him, from the Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera. And this is a, we see this over and over in, in these conquests, that the bulk of the fighting, the, the, the key victory is the Lord's always. It's always his power. In the song, it says that the stars fought. Uh, from heaven. So this is a cosmic thing. This is a spiritual thing that God does. It's not the 10,000 men. Uh, it is the Lord who fights for them. And all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now, here's where the story gets really interesting. And I, I love, I don't think that the point of the story is the battle. The point of the story is what happens next. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, this is the moment in the movie that you hate, right? There's a big victory, but the main bad guy sneaks off, and you know he's coming back stronger than ever. You know he's going to—you just hate that he escaped, right? We had him there, but he, he somehow escaped. So he flees away on foot, it says. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left, but— Sisera fled away on foot. The one guy, the head of it, he got away. 
okay? Now, the scene shifts, and this is a drastic shift. <clears throat> it shifts from 10,000 men versus 900 iron chariots, and who knows how many other men alongside the 900 chariots, in the wide open plains of Megiddo, all right? And if you know anything about the geography, if you studied uh, Megiddo, it's this big open plain, and it's actually where, uh, it's where we get the word Armageddon, the final battle, the plains of Megiddo. It's this big battlefield, right? Um, huge scope. And we go from there to the, this one kind of single woman tent. <laughs> and just, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing, okay? And the scene shifts so dramatically. Uh, so we have to feel that, that from this huge fight, the one guy sneaks off, the one guy that really matters, right? The one guy, that guy that, could, uh, that could come back with a vengeance eventually and, and rebuild. And, and, but here he goes, and he sneaks off to this woman's house. Now, Deborah had uh, prophesied to Barak that the glory would come at the hands of a woman. Barak must have thought that she was referring to herself or that the Lord was saying, you know, it's, it's, this is Deborah's doing. But I actually think it might be referring here to uh, Jael, all right, who's sort of a nobody, right? She, she's, a, she's a Gentile. Somehow or other, she decides to align herself with the people of God in this moment and, uh, and take matters into her own hands, quite literally. So it says, <clears throat> Sisera fled away on foot, and he is the representative head of the enemy, okay? Uh, all, of the, all the soldiers dead, the 900 chariots of iron, that's great. But the head is still alive. The, 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 the heart of that enemy is still there, which means it's not eliminated, okay? It could still come back. <clears throat> Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes to you and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him. All right, so we got the milk, we got the blankie, and she goes softly to him and <laughs> drove the peg into his temple until, and the Bible is ruthless here in the detail, until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, and I would think so. It's the, the understatement of all of Scripture. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan, because the head was cut off. The head of the army was, was now dealt with, and Israel could advance and drive out the rest of that and subdue uh, the people of Canaan. All right, so that's the story. Uh, and we, we end there in a, in a woman's tent. The decisive victory was not won 
at Armageddon, at Megiddo, right, in these big open plains. The decisive victory was won in this woman's tent. And I think that's really the point of the story, that, that the, the shift in scale and scope all the way down this one-to-one battle in the home, all right? And I think it's very significant. So um, chapter 5 is a retelling of this <clears throat> in song, okay? And I just want to, I don't want to go all the way through this. I want to point out a couple of things. Um, then sing Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. So nowhere in the song or anywhere in the story does it, does it say that Barak was, was off or that he was, he was cowering or anything like that. Um, it, it just says that these two shared in the song of victory. Uh, Barak did his part, Deborah did her part, and the, and the will of God was accomplished. Um, it says that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. This section shares uh, its, its structure with, uh, in Exodus 15, when Miriam, when the people of Israel come through the Red Sea, and it tells the story once, and then, and then Miriam starts to sing with all the, the, the women, and they retell it in song, and they're giving glory for, to God for the things that he's done. Um, and I, I love these moments in Scripture where something happens, and we read the story, and then we see the people relive the story in song and in praise and highlight uh, different aspects of it and give glory to God for, for, different, um, for different details and different ways in which he was involved and different things, uh, different ways that the story highlights God's glory. Um, and this, this is what worship is, right? Remembering the way God has moved, the things that he has done, remembering them and saying, oh, yes, that you, that you saved me, that you, um, that you sent that person to share the gospel with me, we praise your holy name, right? And this is, this is true worship, right? And it's grounded in reality. It's grounded in an experience of God in history. And it, and it goes back to him in song. And what a, what a great vision of true worship. The people of Israel have won a victory because of, of God and, and the way that he moved in people's lives, in Deborah's life, in Barak's life, in Jael's situation even. And they, they want to, to attribute that all to God. And that, that is true worship. <clears throat> um, the other thing I'll note is that you should go through and, and compare whenever there's Whenever there's a song or a poem that's revisiting a story, you should look at the, the different way that the poetry describes the story uh, and, and the way it's different from where the narrative describes it. Um, maybe, maybe I just enjoy that, but, but I always like looking at how, how much richer and more uh, almost sensory that the poem, the poetry is. It really brings you in and it highlights very different details and it makes it so much more concrete. Um, so I encourage you, whenever the Bible... In, in the Psalms or here or, or through the Old Testament, when there are songs, pay attention to the, to the ways, to the different layers of, uh, of language and, and description that are used. Don't just breeze through them. Uh, they're, they're meant to draw you in, to draw your whole self into the story in a richer way. <clears throat> um, I want to point out one aspect of the story. So it talks about the, the victory it talks about, um, it kind of calls out a few of the tribes for not being as willing 
right? It exalts the people who are willing to join Barak in battle. And it says, you know, hey, Dan, why did you, uh, <laughs> in verse 17, Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Why, why did he stay with the ships? And then it says, uh, Asher sat still at the coast of the sea. So it, it does call out the, uh, the tribes that, that didn't offer themselves willingly, but it exalts the tribes that did. Um, but I want to focus on the, the last part of the song, which begins to talk about Jael. And in verse 24, it says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Haber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. That's some, that's some lofty language here in a, in a song of praise. Most blessed of women be Jael. And then it gets into the, it takes you th- back through that story and it, and it, it highlights some things and, and it gives you a different angle, enhances it. He asked water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. See how it kind of brings you into the story in a different way. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. <laughs> Much more uh, vibrant. And, uh, you know, even in translation, you can pick up on the, the, the different way that it's told. Um, it's much more, uh, it's like you're, you're there in the moment and you're reacting and responding to the events as they're happening. And then this is really interesting. Verse 28, out of the window she peered. And this is a part that's not in the narrative, but that the poem sort of imagines. All right. Out of the window she peered. Who's she? The mother of Sisera. Well, she's not in the narrative at all, but, it, the, but the song imagines the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. So wait, this is the guy. So Sisera is there dead, and the poet is imagining now Sisera's mother waiting. And this just really enhances the emotion, okay? Why is his chariot so long in coming? This is a mom waiting for her son to get back from war. This is a crazy thing to, for the poet to, to bring into the, uh, the emotions for the, for the poet to bring in at this point. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess's answer, indeed she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Why do the princesses say that he's delayed in coming? Oh, they won a victory and they must be enjoying the spoils of war. They must have found some, uh, some ladies to enjoy it with, uh, to take captive and all the spoils of war It says a womb or two for every man. But if you go back to where uh, Sisera died, it says, between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. This is the opposite of what the ladies imagine is going on, where they are enjoying and and taking captive the women uh, that they've just conquered. No, 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 no. Between the feet of that woman, Sisera lies dead. So this is an amazing perspective to bring into the poem. There's no womb or two for every man. Uh, Sisera lies dead at the hands of a woman, which is a total reversal of expectation. So then it ends, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. 
But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. All right, so it's a, it's a striking story. It's an amazing story. Um, and, and it does highlight womanhood. But uh, it has been used for so many uh, progressive political ideologies um, that I hesitate to even go there. Uh, I, d- I don't know if we have the right perspective to even understand what this story is saying about womanhood, uh, given all of just the, the culture that we're in. But here's what I can say. I think that JL is being highlighted as a real hero here. Uh, the language is used to describe her. Um, and in some ways, she is a reversal of Eve, okay? She does the deceiving, not, not getting deceived by the man. Uh, he wants her to deceive, and he tries to kind of talk his way into favor with her, but she's actually the one who's ahead of the situation and uh, isn't, isn't following the lies of, of the deceiver. Um, so she's a reversal of Eve, but she's also a preview of Mary, right? So some of the language that's used to describe her, most blessed of women, it sounds like what people say of Mary. <clears throat> um, and also you remember uh, when uh, Jesus says Mary, he says a sword will pierce your heart as well. So there's some parallels between Jael and Mary. She's not one of the wombs that be, that's being captured uh, by the enemy. She, in fact, it says that he, this Sisera, in this sort of maternal, uh, maternal scene, that between her feet, he lies dead, this, uh, this man. But also, <clears throat> I think that we can see the church symbolically in the person of Jael, uh, right? The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the woman uh, that, that Jesus is um, leading into victory in the earth over the enemies uh, of, of God. And I just want to point out, I, I was looking closely at some of the words in the poem, and I want to read a few verses where those same words appear elsewhere in Scripture. And I think you'll, I think you'll catch on to what I'm, what I'm getting at here. Um, first of all, in, in the poem where it says, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. I looked at that word shatter because I thought I had seen it in a few places before. And um, listen, it's in Psalm 110 which, by the way, is, is one of the most quoted psalms, if not the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, particularly referring to Jesus. It says, uh, let's start in verse 2, The Lord says, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Sounds like the song of Deborah, that the leaders offer themselves freely. Praise the Lord. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the days of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Jael shattered a chief. Uh, of, of the nations, of the enemies of God. And in doing so, she's participating in the victory that the anointed king of God, the, bro- the holy bridegroom, is working in the earth. She was a preview of that, all right? Uh, and listen to this in, in Habakkuk chapter 3. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 
if I can find it. I keep going. Back kick three. <clears throat> Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This is talking about God, talking about the victory of his anointed one. It says, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. All right, so this is similar, similar uh, situation to, uh, to J.L. Um, the other thing I, I looked up was the tent peg, all right, the tent peg that she uses. And I found this really interesting verse in Zechariah 10. <clears throat> Zechariah 10. I will bring them home. Oh, no. Zechariah 10, verse 4, sorry. From him... I'll start in verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him, that's the tribe of Judah, so this is talking about the coming Messiah. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg. And it's the same word that's used as the thing that's driven through Sisera's head by Jael. From him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. So metaphorically, the, the, the Messiah is even called, he's the tent peg. And uh, I just think that's a striking, that, that word's not used too much in the Old Testament. It's used once in the hand of Sis, in the hand of Jael, going through Sisera's head, and it's used in Zechariah here to describe the coming Messiah. Um, but ultimately, <clears throat> in order for any of this victory to be possible, um, and, and this is kind of how I want to I want to close this and, and set our, our thoughts tonight. <clears throat> uh, I want to read another portion where it talks about crushing and piercing. And, and, and bruising, uh, which, by the way, I, I also think that J.L. echoes, her actions echo the, um, the part in, in Genesis 3, where it talks about the, the seed of the woman, uh, uh, where the curse to the serpent is that he will put enmity between him and the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Uh, I, I really think that the story of J.L. Uh, alludes to that. But um, I want to end by reading through Isaiah 53, because <clears throat> in order for any of this victory to be possible, what had to happen first is that um, the one who bore our sins, the one who is the ultimate revelation of who God is, had to become a man and become the pierced one and the crushed one uh, so that we could walk in victory. Um, and I just want to say, I, I go to Isaiah 53, and I want you to listen for echoes of, of these words that we've heard in the story of Jael and Sisera. 
God himself had to become a man, right? We see in the book of Judges that God used people. He used whoever, right? He used Samson. He used Gideon. He used Deborah. He used Ehud. He used all these people. And they achieved a measure of salvation for a time. But it wasn't until God became flesh himself that he could arise in Israel and, and truly deliver them uh, from this cycle of sin, right? The, the cycle isn't just in Judges. The cycle is all the way down until we get to the coming of Jesus. And he had to take on flesh and be raised up as a judge, be declared by God as the deliverer in order to deliver his people once and for all, okay, and, and break the cycle. But it couldn't just be by, by military might, by, by one battle, or even by a, a heroic act by a woman in a tent. It had to be by taking on all of the sin and all the punishment and all of the, the, the oppression and undoing it by going into the grave and being raised. So <clears throat> I want to end by not by saying, all right, everybody just go get your tent pegs and we need to drive a, a stake through the head of the enemy. Um, I want us to, to remember that Jesus came and allowed himself to be pierced, to be crushed, um, and, and so that we can walk in his victory. So I want to read Isaiah 53, and we'll close with this. <clears throat> this is how God came down and ultimately won the decisive victory, by being defeated, by being crushed, all right? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our dalliance with the world, our, our service of Baal and Ashtoreth ultimately cost God the life of his own son. And that's what we have to realize, that it's not just the Israelites getting tempted away by, by idols. It is the people of God forsaking the one who made them and God sticking with them, sticking with them until ultimately he had to pay the highest price. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the downward spiral, our God came and bore all of that. He bore the, the consequences of all of that. He bore the punishment of all of that. And it was the will of God to put him to death so that the cycle would finally stop and so that we could follow him into the land, our heavenly Joshua, and he could subdue all of the enemies around him. And we too could take up and subdue the enemies, not because we're finally good enough, not because we finally, we finally saw the light, but because he finally came and he was stricken and was afflicted. Um, so I just want us to remember Jesus in this, that these judges, they're very flawed individuals, but they speak to something that Jesus had to come and do, right? They all got messy. They all got in the dirt uh, for the people of God. They all stood up and did something, right, in, in their broken ways. Jesus stood up and did something in his perfect and righteous way, and it cost him his life. It cost God the life of his son, but the truth of the resurrection is that he rose and that no longer can the enemy hold us in fear. No longer can the, the people, ar- people around us uh, intimidate us and impress, uh, uh, oppress us and drive us and tempt us away from devotion to God. Uh, all of that has been dealt with so that we can live in the land and, and drive out the enemy of God and get ahead of the deceiver and know what he's up to and know that, yes, he's stronger than us, but we have our judge and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we do listen to our judge. You know, we don't forget what he says and he, he gives us true salvation uh, as we live our lives out in this land. Um, so I, I wanted us to just, just remember Jesus and um, remember that these judges, they were okay for a time, but Jesus has secured our salvation for all of time. And, uh, and he, he will never fail and he will never, um, he will never leave us or forsake us. Um, so let's pray. And then uh, I invite you to, to spend some time this evening remembering Jesus remembering that he was pierced for our transgressions. Um, and that the, the only one that, that was the perfect judge uh, was the one who, who bore the sins of many. Uh, so let's pray and then uh, have some good fellowship and, and prayer time uh, with whoever you're with tonight. Jesus, we exalt your name. And we say that you, <clears throat> you are our true judge. And we thank you that you are the good judge. Uh, Lord, we we declare that you have been seated at the right hand of the Father. And we want to exalt you for um, bearing the the sins and the chastisement uh, that your people deserve. Uh, Lord, we thank you for showing us the way to break the cycle uh, is to die 
to this sin, to die to the world, to die to, to everything but the will of God. And we thank you for showing us that, Lord, and for making it possible in our lives and for, for leading us on in, in, the, in the heavenly example. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and, and fill, us with, uh, fill us with the life of Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would raise us up as mothers in Israel, as fathers in Israel, as men and women uh, in the earth uh, to come and call each other to rise up and take this land and, and to not let the enemy uh, oppress us cruelly and not to be intimidated by those 900 iron chariots, but to walk in victory. And Lord, I pray that you would, um, in, the, in the domestic setting, Lord, in that private setting where it's just one person and, uh, and the enemy of the people of God, Lord, that you, would, that you would make us wise, that we would not be deceived. Uh, we would be those people who take uh, the tent peg of your son and drive it through the head of our enemy. Uh, Lord, that, that we would, uh, that the enemy would be, we, we would lay dead in the floors of our homes uh, because of our, our commitment and our devotion to you. Uh, Lord, we thank you. I pray that you would protect everyone in this time, that you'd help us to be a witness in this city, uh, and that you would uh, exalt your, your church, your bride in this place, in this season, uh, so that people could see who you are in the depths of your love. In your name we pray. Amen.